Yeah, it's hard to be vulnerable with just like another person there that's not participating. It doesn't have to give any vulnerability in the room, even with other musicians that you're playing with that are like refusing to like be vulnerable in that kind of a songwriting crucible. That's annoying, let alone a person who's just kind of standing there looking at you. Well, and you're also not going to get, you know, John's full attention or his engagement you know he's going to be yeah, correct. by definition like half checked out with his other half sitting right next and to him and that's before the heroin yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and lifelong musicians pick an album, typically from Robert Dimery's seminal work, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, break down, analyze that record, complain about it, talk about what's good, why it's good, etc. This week, we are going to be talking about the Beatles album, Let It Be. And before we stir controversy on the Reddit thread, let me just say that we know <laughs> that it is, in fact, not on Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. This is partially motivated by the fact that we've all been watching Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary over the long winter and are just excited to talk about the Beatles, a band that we've mentioned many times on the podcast, but we haven't actually covered any of their their records yet so we thought we'd take a little left turn and talk about a an album of theirs that is that is not on there on Robert Dimery's list that is and at the same time let you dear listener understand if ultimately let it be belongs on this list was this a big oversight from Dimery or, or what what's really going on here so was he suggesting that this is worse than Nana Cherry by leaving it off the album? <laughs> That's the only That's takeaway that, that I have here. The, the, that the is, implication is there. That is the direct implication, yes. So. That's a well given that threshold, I think we can probably <laughs> end the episode right here. <laughs> so maybe I'll just kick it off. We've all, I assume, been listening to Let It Be, and like I said, we've all been watching Peter Jackson's recent Get Back documentary, which sought to take all the footage. So maybe we'll just start by saying Let It Be is known as the Beatles' last album. It's the last released album. It's not technically the last thing they did in the studio. And during the process of the recording sessions, for most of the songs that made it to the album Let It Be, they were being filmed by a film crew nearly 100% of the time. So there was tons of footage. It was originally compiled and released as a theatrical film in the 70s called Let It Be, which was then sort of pulled from theaters. We, we can get into that later. But more recently, Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame got access to the footage and got the blessing of the various estates to recut it into a new documentary, which recently premiered and was called Get Back. So that's the documentary I'm referring to. It's approximately nine hours of watching a band rehearse. So if that sounds <laughs> interesting to you. It really felt like the first world's first like reality show. I feel like yeah, they kind of must that. have pioneered okay. that back then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, I, I want to talk reactions to all those things, but let's start as we traditionally do with just a tweet-length review of the album, Let It Be. And we should separate just right in the viewers' minds right away, in case it wasn't clear. The sessions that are documented in the documentary Get Back and the album itself, Let It Be, because they are kind of two different products. 
So your tweet length review of Let It Be the album. I'm going to kick this one to Tom. Yeah, my tweet length review is after seeing the recording process and how they wanted to compress it, the album makes a little bit more sense to me. It feels less fully baked than the other Beatles albums that I consider to be the pinnacle classic albums. Absolutely. Fair, fair. We're going to kick this one on to Adam. Hey, this is Adam, and my quick review would be that half these songs are phenomenal, and half these songs, almost exactly half, are completely mediocre. Well, this is Alan. You kind of stole my thunder slightly in that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, my initial thoughts in all this, and I've thought this about the album for a while, but um, even mediocre Beatles is still pretty darn good. <laughs> good point. Phil, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, I th- I mean, I I thought the album was great. You know, it's got some soft spots for sure, which I, I know we're going to get into. But, I mean, overall, the documentary, I mean, I think you really, you know, you see friendship. You see the history of the band right in front of you, you know. And shit, I mean, John and Paul can really sing. It's like a flipping yeah. freak show, right? Yeah, like uh, a two-part harmony freak show. Yeah. I agree to all that. My tweet length review is Beatles make a concept album where the concept is nostalgia for their long gone days as a live rock band. And there is a lot of emotional baggage weighing down this record, but I also think there's a lot of charm, like Phil said, and a lot of friendship that shines through. So in case you have never listened to recorded music in your life or turned on a radio (laughs) or bought an artifact of the recording industry let's go ahead and just play the song let it be the title track for you just so you know which band we might be referring to here (laughs) when i find myself in times of trouble mother mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be And in my hour of darkness She is standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom, let it be Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be Whisper words of wisdom, let it be Okay, now that we're back from that, you know who the Beatles are, I should hope. <laughs> but I thought I would, just just in case, I thought I would just give a very short, quick history of where the Beatles are in their career at this moment. And the context that I think one needs to understand, kind of the concept behind this record, as well as this documentary. So, the context is this. The Beatles get together in the early 60s and play clubs extensively for a few years, they hone their skills and become a very tight band, as I think you'll see on display in, in the documentary, as aforementioned. They become stars in England first in the early 1960s. They then become stars in America. This is where Beatlemania is kicking in, etc. And But pretty quickly after that, after a couple years of touring the world, they get annoyed with fans constantly screaming during their shows, the sound quality they're able to get in stadiums in that era, and other various backlashes and security issues around them 
touring and playing live. So they decided to stop playing live in the summer of 1966. And their last show is actually at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. This is important because then it really, it's an inflection point in the band, right? Where they decide instead to focus on studio albums and experimentation. And in the process, they make a lot of great records. They make a lot of musical and technological breakthroughs. They basically release a classic record every nine months for the next four years. And then they end the band. But that kind of brings them up to this Let It Be era, what the documentary is documenting, which is they set out to play live again and recapture some of that energy, which they had not done for quite a while. And I, frankly, I think some of this is a little egotistical because the the public, while you know, while the Beatles were extremely popular, we could do it by the numbers shortly on their success of their record sales, et cetera. There was some, hey, can they even play these songs live anymore? And the truth is they couldn't play most of the songs live because it was so layered with studio instrumentation and experimentation and, and overdubs and things like that. So they set out in these sessions that are documented in the documentary, they had a finite amount of time, they had three weeks, and they had a pretty loose concept, which was to get back to their roots, play, write and play and perform only songs that could be done without overdubs, meaning as a live band in the room. And at the end of that three weeks, and they had kind of a hard out, because partly because Ringo had to go shoot a movie, conflicting schedules, etc., they had this short amount of time, and they wanted to play a concert at the end of it. Or at least the record executives wanted them to play a concert. I love that Ringo was one of the people holding up the, <laughs> the train. <laughs> right. And so, you know, on the album itself, we can just say it, it was the final album released by the record company, and thus is synonymous or seen as synonymous with the Beatles' breakup, but that's a, a little inaccurate. These sessions are very well documented, as we mentioned, because there was a film crew following them around. It was, they were aiming to shoot, to make it into a documentary, which, which they did twice, in fact. But it, it took a long time for the record to come together after they walked out of the studio, as, as shown in that documentary. So we can talk a little more about the recording timeline and things like that. But anyway, but that, that was their goal. And I think that concept shines through and it has some hits and misses on it. What do you guys think? I, I think that having a film crew there is the worst idea ever. That seems like a terrible idea when you're in that sort of pressure cooker environment, especially with that really truncated timeline to try to put together an album. Three weeks. That is aggressive. And it to write is. as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they all had ideas for songs clunking around in their heads. But It's pretty clear that some of those songs they, they came in with, right? Like they yeah, Sure, sure. Yeah. Definitely. Even still. Let's, yeah, three weeks to, to learn, you know, well, one thing all I new found material. Interesting was it was obvious in watching the documentary that they didn't like it. So I don't know if Paul was the one that sort of drove that concept and everyone else just sort of fell in line, but it, it didn't seem like they liked it at all from the, from the jump. So I have a little information about this and a fun quote from John Lennon on the topic, which is yes, Paul definitely drove it. I think that's a little bit on display in the documentary itself. One of the things that had happened is they had slaved over their last album, the White Album, the so-called White Album, but they had done it in a very separate way, and they realized they were growing apart as a band, partly through that recording process, which didn't necessarily see them all in the same room at the same time very often. That plus it took them longer than normal to create that record, and the other thing that happened was that their longtime manager had just died, Brian Epstein. Right, and they were feeling like right. he, he was kind of like a father figure to them, always kind of kept them in line. He was sort of the 
a driving force behind what the band would do. By the way, father figure, he died at 32. So he was like the father figure of them died at 32 years old. I was a little bit like, I assumed that they were like mid thirties at this point. Oh no, 28, 27, yeah. maybe? George was 26. He's the oh youngest. My God. And Ringo you was 29. Tell. He's the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> you could definitely tell George brother? was the youngest. <laughs> when they walked right. in. So I think, yes, I think this was Paul's attempt to try to get them back to, to being friends again, basically. Maybe it was in a sense a last ditch effort. But one of the, the funny quotes I pulled from an interview with John clearly doesn't doesn't love this concept. He says, Paul had this idea that we we're going to rehearse or that we'll rehearse and make this album. And of course, we're lazy fuckers and we've been playing for 20 years for fuck's sake. We're grown men. We're not going to sit around rehearsing. I'm not. Anyway. <laughs> and I think he carried that energy through. I was yeah. sort of shocked at his maybe I just wasn't as familiar with the dynamics of the band. But I always thought he had a little bit more like of the alpha in the band. And, you know, watching the documentary, I was kind of surprised at how much of a sort of backseat he took in in terms of like steering the ship. I don't know if anybody else felt that way at all. I I definitely think that's a dynamic that shifted over time. Right. I think we definitely were witnessing a sort of I mean, kind of live. Right. A freakish creative explosion from, you know. 25, 26 year old Paul McCartney. I mean, he's just looks like, and I wrote this one, long and winding road, and I wrote this right, one, like, right, you right. know, like, live and let die. Like, you know, like, I wrote this one. <laughs> well, look, can we say this about the songwriting? One thing I did pick up was, yeah, they definitely have these kernels of songs clearly in various stages of doneness rattling around their heads. So they don't write everything when they show up there, minus maybe one prominent example that we'll get to. But I, I kind of that sort of taught me that they all they all did some of that. You heard John do early versions of Jealous Guy. You heard George do All Things Must Pass. Like mm-hmm. the idea that they're they're taking a very broad approach to songwriting, broad broad in the sense they have a lot of irons on the fire. Which is probably a smart idea. I do think the alpha role shifted to Paul. I've heard George say also that beyond like maybe Revolver or Sgt. Pepper, the he doesn't think they would have made any more records if it weren't for Paul. Like, Paul was the one that was sort of insisting they continue to get together. And But the other thing that it, maybe a casual observer of the documentary might miss that's going on behind the scenes is John is a heroin addict. And it's oh, yeah. kind of new. John and Yoko are addicted to heroin during this documentary. And the band's aware of it, but it's a no one's talking about it sort of directly on camera. So that is definitely sapping his interest in being there. You can tell looking at him, I, I didn't really know this like as I was watching it, but as I kind of learned more about when he sort of got got a little bit hooked, I mean, he, there's times where it zooms in and he's just got that like thousand yard stare, just like staring into nothing. <laughs> when they come back from lunch, he's <laughs> like, uh. You know, just while we're there, what is Ringo on? In this phase, because he looks faded the whole time. <laughs> I think he's just he like, might just smoking mad weed. Which, by the way, on the, I cannot believe how much everybody smoked oh, it's in that time. It's, it's incessant. How could they sing like birds? They were cigarettes and constantly. tea were the uh, were the backbone of the British rock <laughs> movement. Yeah, they're really like, really hardening their vocal cords from the inside and the out, you know, just really making them resilient to anything. So I will say on the John front, my thoughts on John definitely radically changed watching this. And 
I not for the better, I would say. I thought he was a little bit more of an asshole in than he came off as in this documentary. He came off as a different kind of asshole, maybe. He came off as the flippant, I don't want to be here, like, yeah. you know, I'm not there super was one... engaged asshole. I thought he was more of the, like, I have a vision we have to execute kind of asshole. Yeah, there was that one scene where they're all sitting around and Paul's trying to figure out next steps and John's in a seat just, like, talking lyrics or, like, be- being deliberately cryptic and just, just kind of being a dick. That, that, that scene stuck out in my head where, you know, Paul's, like, clinging on to the concept and trying to make this work and john's over there just kind of being john yeah he he definitely did not want to be there just for anyone who hasn't seen this documentary which again spans nine hours of your time so we'll forgive you if you didn't watch it the recording (laughs) timeline looks something like this they set themselves out this goal of having three weeks to write rehearse record an album and then play a show and they're sort of in debate in the early days about whether or not they're going to play a show, where that show is going to be, if it's going to happen. That They kind of go back and forth on that, or whether or not the live performance will, in fact, be the album. That kind of flips around, and it ends up being a half-and-half half kind of situation. They start in one place, which is really like a film studio, because they're trying to accommodate this film crew, I guess, and thinking maybe that's a place where they can bring an audience in and film the concert that's intended to be the climax of this movie, right? But they're debating it. But they, the Beatles quickly are just like, this is, this is terrible. We hate the vibe here. And they go back to their more comfortable environs, which are, which are the Apple studios. It seems like a really weird vibe, by the way. It seems like they're in like a 20,000 square foot room yeah. with like no corners. And, right? and they're, and they're <laughs> huddled in, in chairs. Like there's like right. they're smoking pot together, like right next to each other playing their instruments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also it looked like it was cold. Like they're all like wearing fur coats and shit in there. Yeah. It did not look like an environment that you would be like, yeah, this is great. Let's jam. And they knew it from the moment they walked in. They all kind of were like, I sort of hate this. I don't think anybody was happy with it. Yeah, and the sounds weird. Well, you could tell. I feel like the second the documentary started, I was like, who the fuck would want to record in this place? It's just right. like, like <laughs> dank, drafty room. So there is kind of a, a shift in the mood, though. It's Uh, instigated by George quitting the band, kind of walking out on practice, not showing up the next day. They eventually convince him to come back. Some of that happens off camera. And part of his coming back is they agree his compromise is let's move to Apple Studios where we'll be more comfortable. And also George decides to bring in this guy, Billy Preston, a keyboard player, an excellent keyboard player who played with Ray Charles and just a bunch of people that they knew from back in their Hamburg days. He then went on to have a solo career. And if you haven't looked up Billy Preston and seen his Wikipedia photograph, I strongly recommend doing that right now. His afro is so big it will not fit in the portrait cropped photo. <laughs> is this like from the like coming around in circles video? Yeah, ex- or exactly. Something? Will it go around in circles? Yeah. But you Whoa. know they, they bring it. They bring it. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, dude. laughs> that is badass. They bring him in. The vibe changes in a good way. So maybe maybe that's the other thing we should say is that one of the revelations of this documentary. When they originally produced the movie, the theatrical release in the 70s, it was called Let It Be. And this is in the wake of the Beatles having broken up and that news breaking. And there was a lot of acrimony between the members of the Beatles. And the documentary seemed to confirm how acrimonious all their interactions were. So part of, I think, Peter Jackson's goal with this this re- sort of recut of the footage, and I think he got access to some new footage and things, was to a little bit rewrite the script. There is definitely acrimony 
on that subtle passive aggressive band level and there's some aggressive aggressive stuff too but I think particularly after Billy Preston comes back in you do see a lot of joy and fun and friends having fun with each other and that cool creative process and so they very much seem like dudes to me like writing songs hanging out making records like it just so happens that you know and and you know John and Paul have a very serious like 10,000 hours sort of thing like they can just sing and it doesn't matter like the other one could just sing something else always and it sounds amazing it's unreal always. it's unreal it's, it's unreal yeah. they go from vision to execution excellent execution instantly it's yeah, crazy it's, it's, i was pretty heartened by the fact that you know obviously their output is much different than like you know a normal band or anything that we've been a part of but i was heartened at how much it felt just like band practice like we've all been in bands yes Yes. And totally. I thought there would be some like secret sauce or some sort of like, you know, special well, process. I, I was but thinking, it was just like dudes shooting the shit, playing cover tunes, fucking I, around. If I had watched this as a 14 year old, my world would have crumbled because the Beatles were this magical force, right? They're almost not human. And then as a 41 year old, I watch it and it, you're right. I, I it, it makes me feel better. I'm like, oh, they were a bunch of dudes. Like you. You can do like, yeah, they're 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 not Matt. Granted, they're on another level, but still, they're just guys in a studio, and I've seen that, and I've been in that, so it's not this magical thing that I thought as a kid. Well, one thing, and I I feel we probably should address maybe part of the sort of elephant in the room, literally all the damn time. <laughs> Could you imagine being in a band practice and just having your girlfriend sitting next to you the entire time, six inches from you? By that the way. that was like, weird. Touching touching at all times super yeah weird we're talking a band where everyone has instruments in their lap sitting in a very tight circle like i could reach out and touch you other bass player and yoko is still in that circle somehow and just like reading the paper yeah yeah the girl from the ring shows up that's what she always reminded (laughs) me of with that hair (laughs) (laughs) it's so bizarre it is so bizarre and i'll give paul credit he at one point says they're just trying to be as close as possible all the time. That's the thing that they're doing, and like that's cool. I would not have been that cool. About it. I would have been <laughs> like, know, "What is wrong with you?" I gotta say, I, I tend to agree with you. I think the band handled Yoko being there constantly, really, really well. And in Yoko's defense, and this is maybe the only thing I can really think of in anyone's defense would want to do that and just like sit there while you know the band chain smoke cigarettes it is just there are already so many other people there where why can't i be there mm. too yeah they're not mm, sitting in the middle of the fucking circle <laughs> and george george made those other guys sit in the corner those weird yeah. hari krishnas <laughs> yeah, exactly you guys are over there exactly <laughs> they bring flowers over and shit and the people no. be like oh, no. there you go you're good the best thing to compare it to apples to apples comparison is Linda McCartney also shows up. This is they're not married yet. This is early in their relationship. They're in love for sure. And she hangs out in the fringe. She first of all, she's not there every day. She pops in like one or two days. Second is she just stays out of the band circle. There's something sacred. <laughs> oh, and doing work. Totally, and totally. third, she takes pictures. She's actually like documenting things that yes. are going on and not just standing there screaming into a, a distant stare. Look, I'm not going to suggest uh. that she didn't handle her business in a way more consistent with how maybe I would like to handle Ringo's my wife was there for like scenario. 20 minutes. Like, <laughs> I feel like they're like, hey, then this is Ringo's wife. And he's Those, like, hey, yeah, no, get I think the fuck she out. said more words than he did in total. Yeah. <laughs> Those are normal. That's normal wife behavior, though, to go like, yeah, I'm not really right. interested in this. I would like to leave right. and go do my own thing. 
Yeah. What was it like that first time that John brings her in? Was it like she comes and sits real close and they're like, because uh, there had to be some icebreaker <laughs> where, you know. Well, they, maybe that was the problem. Maybe it was just never addressed because they were like, well, this can't continue. I mean, <laughs> clearly. If we, right, we don't right, talk right, about right, it. Right. <laughs> right. He's just going through something right now. This won't, this yeah. won't keep going. Yeah. I read. I also read that later in this. I, maybe the next set of sessions they had and the last set of sessions they had where they finished off Abbey Road later that year is that she was had been in a car accident. So they had to bring her in in a hospital bed, but she was still in the circle with them, like touching John while they were playing. That's really weird. That's <laughs> so Can you imagine weird. having that's that? Like, um, wow, I can't even. It just goes to show you, like, this is why subsequent generations have gotten better by accepting therapy as something that you can bring (laughs) into your life to make you better. Because that kind of codependent relationship, any therapist would have been like, this isn't healthy for either of you. This is just really bad. I I just want to (laughs) clarify that for so long, this is not just like there's been a whole snap around effect where for a long time, Yoko was blamed as breaking up the Beatles. And that was canon to a lot of people who just wanted it in that headline form. Then part of what I heard about this documentary, and even before this documentary, was, hey, it's more complicated than that. It was about George being feeling pushed out and not giving room as a songwriter. It was about Paul being too much of a boss or a dictator, blah, 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 blah. And it is about all those other things. But this documentary, in a way that I think for us who have been in so many band practices in those kinds of rooms can maybe only understand like it's possible that a lay person could watch this documentary and go yeah yoko's not doing anything she's just hanging out she's not even talking she's not bothering you guys no this is insanely disruptive and weird mm-hmm. yeah it's hard to be vulnerable with just like another person there that's not participating it doesn't have to give any vulnerability in the room even with other musicians that you're playing with that are like refusing to like be vulnerable in that kind of a songwriting crucible. That's annoying. Let alone a person who's just kind of standing there looking at you. Well, and you're also not going to get, you know, John's full attention or his engagement. You know, he's going to be yeah. by definition, like half checked out with his other half sitting right next and to him. And that's before the heroin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe she drove him to heroin use. That's also a possibility. This this whole thing culminates in them playing. They, they, they debate whether they're going to play the concert at all. They debate playing it in front of an audience, going flying to Africa and playing it in some large amphitheater, playing it on an ocean liner. But ultimately, they decide to play it on the rooftop of the studio, which is somewhere in downtown London during the lunch hour. And they ended up taking some of the tracks directly from that rooftop concert, which is I didn't hadn't realized before watching this documentary. Me, me either. And putting them directly on the album, which is pretty cool. But I'll just say right off the bat, this rooftop concert, which I think a lot of people have heard about, I think in my mind, I had always pictured that it was on like the second floor or someplace where people might actually be able to see the Beatles. I don't think I realized that people were just on the street <laughs> hearing things, but have no visual really? of these human beings. Yeah, I, that no, never I didn't watch the side, third. Yeah. I, I didn't watch the third episode. So uh, they're that, like seven you floors see up, them. and wow. they're like asking people on the street. They're filming a camera crew on the street, also saying like, "Hey, do you do you know who this is?" And a lot of people are like, "I think it's the Beatles," but no one can see them. <laughs> and that's it's like Savile Row too, right? That's like an upscale yes. shopping district. It's probably not filled with the young Beatles fans. It's probably like, you know, mid-40s businessmen who oh, have a lot of money, and right? There were, and there were a lot of people who were not happy about this disruption in the middle of their yeah. day also. Yes. 
Yeah. Like, what is this racket? And they're like on camera forever saying that. Well, I also I didn't I didn't realize that uh, they were doing like retakes and like I thought it was like a straight concert where it was like play each song once through. I didn't realize they were you right. know sort of starting and stopping, which must have made it that much worse for everybody was, else. But that context turns it so much more into a vanity project than it does a fan service type of or like project. a spontaneous sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. It was it was definitely not spontaneous, but it also wasn't overly planned because I think the reason they ended up in that position was because they only had about six songs, and they you know right to the last minute they couldn't even agree on what they were going to do or if they were going to do it. So we sort of got we got what we got, and it turned into a couple recordings on the tape itself, which is pretty cool. But yeah, which, other than that, which songs specifically are from so the rooftop? Dig a pony. I've got a feeling, and one after nine oh nine are all the takes from the rooftop. Oh, okay. Get back is not from the rooftop. I don't think it is, but I I, I could be wrong. What's the one where um, at the at the end Lennon goes? Uh, I hope we pass the audition. So he said is that, that at, one of the rooftop. He said that at the end of their while they were leaving the rooftop, not necessarily at the uh. end of any given track. So they did cut these together. So now it's time to talk about what happened with this production because, as I am mentioned or implied earlier that there's the sessions and then there's the album itself and now this will get us into the album right the album package that we know as let it be and you could probably already tell there's a bunch of different versions of it out there but the main one the one that came out and was the last beatles release and the one that most people know it not only came out over a year after these sessions but it brought together recordings from a year before these sessions almost a year after these sessions and it was really produced outside of the Beatles' purview. This other people took took it over. So I'll give you a quick timeline here so we can know what we're talking about. So one of the guys we've talked about previously on this podcast, Glenn Johns, was one of the engineers at Apple Studios. He also, I believe, produced Led Zeppelin 1. Is that right, Tom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, was the, he was the engineer. I he think was, he was the producer, too. Yeah. Okay. So, well, he, he was there, and he's in the documentary the whole time. He's a and weirdo. At the end of this process, they had, because they had been playing and recording everything they did for three weeks straight, they had just had reels and reels of tape sitting there. And the oh, Beatles are so God. disgusted with themselves. They're like, we have no interest in sifting through this. They go, Glenn Johns. <laughs> they point at like the thing of the stack of tape reels and they go, you, you make this into an album. Like, have at it, buddy. And he's terrified, as you can imagine. You know, he's like, I got to make a Beatles record out of this, right? <laughs> so... As we said, you know, they, they, they were still working on this concept to try to humanize them, which meant including things like false starts and little jams, which is, which is basically what, what gets them, gets, makes it onto the record, and ultimately maybe take them off their pedestal a little bit and make them into more of a band. Glenn Johns tried three different times to create a mix of this and a track listing, and the Beatles rejected every single one. Quote from John, Glenn Johns did a terrible job. <laughs> no one wanted to deal with all this tape, but he did a terrible job, basically. So garbage the in, project garbage was out. kind of left, and he, and he was really, you know, he, he was bummed out by that. Obviously, he had an opportunity, and they hated him. So they went back to the Studio Magic approach, and apparently what happened is that without Paul's consent or George Martin's, here's you know, George Martin has long been the Beatles producer throughout their entire career. He was there overseeing the sessions as producer, but I think... It's a little unclear what happened. It's a little he said, she said. But it sounds like John Lennon reached out to Phil Spector and said, please mix this for us without asking Paul or George Martin if, 
if the, how they felt about that. And what Phil Spector turned in is ultimately what became the record. So he picked it up, Phil Spector, that is the guy with the, also with the crazy hair, who's, I believe, now in jail. Or yeah, dead. convicted murderer Phil Spector. Convicted murderer Phil Spector. <laughs> oh, right, him. Wall of sound guy. Yeah, he actually, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even get to it until after the band called it quits, right? So that's kind of why it ended up being the last release, even though it's not the last thing recorded. By the way, the, the quote from, from Glenn Johns about uh, the Phil Spector cut of Let It Be is that it was a syrupy load of bullshit. <laughs> accurate in parts this evoked many emotions so john says when specter came around it was like well all right if you want to work with us go and do your audition and he worked like a pig on it he always wanted to work with the beatles and he was given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit and he made something out of it it wasn't fantastic but i heard it and i didn't puke that's john lennon <laughs> that's john. wow now what a d- what? This has the song Let It Be on it. Just let's just get that make that right. clear. Right. So, you know, I think they were annoyed with the whole concept of being in the Beatles at that time. Paul definitely has strong feelings too, but I have a quote from Glenn Johns here that similar to what Tom says, I cannot bring myself to listen to the Phil Spector version of the album. I heard a few bars of it once and was totally disgusted. <laughs> Obviously I'm biased, but I think Phil Spector did the most atrocious job, just utter puke. <laughs> Uh oh, puke. Did Phil Spector That's do anything fantastic. else for them, or was that his first? I think he killed two people. <laughs> I think he killed one woman. Nah, I'm pretty he sure he only killed on one woman. No, did he do anything Jesus. else for the Beatles? I know. <laughs> He's listed as the producer on All Things Must Pass. I know that. I think he produced. Uh, I think he produced a John record too. John has some weird story about getting caught up with some mobster. Uh, so this is like late seventies where John cuts a record of a covers record hmm. and it has to do with some mobster owning song rights and John being caught up with that guy. So if you're wondering why people are annoyed about the Phil Spector cut and why this is a controversy, it's, it's partly based on, and this is coming from guys like George Martin. We're like, Hey, the initial concept was clean live. No, no overdubbing at all. Spectre shit all over that. Right, he looped parts of songs. He mashed together takes. He added big orchestral arrangements. Yeah, right. Right, and Paul and George Martin in particular hated it. And this absolutely fueled, helped fuel the acrimony that happened post breakup, where probably where they were giving these interviews and really disliking each other and maybe even recording songs. John recorded that song about Paul. How do you, whatever gets you through the night or something, right? Maybe they both did that. Anyway, George Martin once said, was credited as saying, the credits should have read, produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector. (laughs) (laughs) Boosh, that is the most, uh, yeah, the most British diss in the world. (laughs) Okay, so this is what led to, yes, we we were going to get into the songs very shortly, but this is why people were excited maybe or a certain kind of nerd like us was excited when i think it was like 2012 or many many years later when paul went back and basically remixed it and called it let it be naked which you can also find on spotify attempts to strip some tracks back he used different takes on certain songs he cut a couple songs and he reordered the tracks as well i had i had never I had never listened to the Let It Be Naked. I'm glad I did, because the long and winding road, Rob, you had mentioned, uh, potentially in a previous podcast, that Paul's version from 2012, you know, corrected some mistakes. 
I like that song a lot better. It's just cleaner. That that song always just came off as sappy, saturated. Yeah. It, 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 I always thought it had the potential to be like a beautiful Paul McCartney ballad, but it never it was never there. And this Let It Be Naked definitely corrected that. So for, for our listener, if you have a chance and you're a big Beatles fan and you haven't heard that, go out and listen to it. Definitely worth uh, a, a spin through. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I got some stuff to say on the long winding road, just because I, I, I agree, let's, I agree let's, with that. Yeah. No. Let's get in. Let's yeah. Let's get into the specific songs. So if you want to kick it off with with long and winding road, Phil, we can we can start well, there. I, I I also love this song, and I particularly love this "Let It Be Naked" take of long and winding road. To some degree, I feel like all of "Let It Be Naked" is really just so Paul could release this take of this song. I read it was some, all just for yeah, all just thing, for that. Yeah, yeah. I read somewhere, I thought I had a book about Let It Be, but I couldn't find it, so maybe not. But in the book, it talked about how either in the mixing sessions with Phil Spector or George Martin, or at some point, Paul was given an acetate of the song, right? Uh, Before all of the arrangements. And Paul knew this meant like he no longer had control of the song. Right. It was oh, sort of somebody like it was sort of it? like here you go. Here's the one you wanted. Right. Like, uh, um, uh, yeah. And and it was you know it was essentially like you know just like a, a live cut from the day. The other thing I thought was really rad on this song that I never noticed, but I think is really obvious and prominent in the the Let It Be Naked cut is that it's not a bass guitar. It's that weird like baritone Fender. Oh, the bass six. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it does have a really interesting vibe, right? And it starts to clarify like what is that sound? You hear it a little bit on Abbey Road too. Like you think it's Wait, bass, what? and then you'll learn what, it on and guitar, what is it? and you're like, eh, it's, it's called like a. That. So Fender came out with this thing back back in the day. It's it's called a, it's just called a bass six. So they use like the Roman numerals. But yeah, it's it's not quite as low as a baritone guitar. I think it sits like a, a slightly higher than than that. Um, but you know, higher than a bass as well. Six strings. They're just like fatter guitar strings, basically. Uh, if you look it oh, up, it looks like okay. a strat with like really thick strings, basically. Cool. Yeah. So that that's played a couple times on this record, and just for the listeners, right? We should say, right? So let's play. We're gonna play a little bit of both versions of Long and Winding Road here momentarily. But it's not just about the take, it's about really about the production, because what Phil Spector did was he took a fairly straightforward piano ballad, and he added a lot of choral arrangements, string arrangements, this orchestral movement. That, that was at least part of the, the big problem, I think, with the song. So let's play the album version, this Phil Spector version of Long and Winding Road. The long and winding road I've seen that road before It always leads me here Lead me to your door Okay, and now that we've heard that, let's just play a snippet of the Let It Be Naked kind of Paul's cut of the same song. The long and winding road that leads 
super interesting that a man who beat a woman to death his greatest crime was still the production on long and winding road <laughs> oh my god holy shit I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry i think he shot a woman um yeah. oh i think he got Dude. i think he was acquitted on another beating earlier was out of no. jail he's, he's not a good dude is the point of the story not a good dude but he was a renowned producer at that time. Let's say this sure. was before his image was was tarnished. He may have been insane back then. I think there are stories to that effect. But he was known as pioneering the wall of sound. He produced a lot of those female sort of pop groups of the 1960s, the Ronettes, you know, Be My Baby. I, I don't know. A ton, a ton of great hit songs were used using his kind of production techniques. So he was still relatively in demand. But he the feeling was that he just wasn't a fit for this album. And I think, I think that's a fair assessment based on Paul, at least Paul and George Martin's concept of what this album was supposed to be. You know what he was a good fit for though? <laughs> it's not murdering women. It's actually the 1981 classic Yoko Ono season of glass, which he produced. Oh, Jesus. I thought you were going to say a prison jumpsuit is what he was yeah. good for. We're getting into Norman Donald territory. I thought you were going to mention this right. murder again. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, here's what I, okay. I don't know. Maybe you can shed some light on this. Uh, you know, and maybe the answer is because they were fed up and with the band and didn't give a shit. But when it was finally, when Phil Spector finally put his you know touch on it, did they not all have a chance to like veto the release? Or because I mean, it's one thing to to be really unhappy with it, but I mean, you get to hear it before it's released, right? I don't know if they still had control of that, or maybe Paul was the odd man out. So I, I I don't know for sure whether we're talking about contractual obligations. It was somehow tied up in their you know another factor here, and it's kind of shown in the documentary is that three of the four Beatles signed with a new manager, this guy called Alan Klein, this American guy, and Paul for whatever reason he rubbed him wrong. So that was like a source of contention and how the monies were split up and how they negotiated for things like the ability to veto records. I think that was a little bit in flux at this moment, and the band was definitely not aligned on it. So I don't, unfortunately, I don't know the real story, unless anyone else does, of why Paul wasn't able to stop its release, but maybe he was just washing his hands of it generally. I could definitely see just being like, fuck it. Yeah, everybody else says it's fine. I hate it, but what are we going to, what am I going to do? I'm going to, I got to get Jet started over here. I'm going to a truck of money up to his house. (laughs) I got to go start wings. I ain't got time for this. Yeah, seriously. You can can cut Ben on the run with this. Yeah, they, they basically left the, so this, the documentary covers a couple weeks in January 1969. I think they ended up getting back together to record the rest of the Abbey Road sessions later that year. But by the time this came out in 1970, they were already all off working on their own solo records. And I just think on to other things, bands with their wives and such. So let's move right along to the next song we wanted to talk about, which is the opening track on the original record called Two of Us. Let's play a snippet of that. Sending postcards, writing letters on my wall. You would be burning matches, lifting lights. 
keep it simple and loop it right back to that Fender 6, because when I was listening to this at first, I was like, man, this is such a great example of how Paul's melodic bass part leads the song, and how it would be a completely different song without it. This is what I was going to say, but it's actually George playing that Fender 6 bass part on guitar, which is pretty cool. I've always found this song pretty charming, just in terms of, yeah, it's just a, it's a charming song. I, it's not one of their better ones, but it again... 100% carried by just that beautiful two part. They can just make yeah. it's any perfect two harmony. Parts work together. It's, yeah, it really, really is. To the point is. where you can't really distinguish the two voices a lot of the time. They've been singing together so long. That's how I you was get ta- that. I was talking with my wife how it's interesting that a melody, you can define a melody and you think of it as the two parts. Like, I, I don't know that there's a, a main line. You know what I mean? They're both mm. so, I mean, I'm sure there is, but they're both so prominent and shared yeah, so yeah, well yeah. in this song it just feels natural that the melody is two parts i feel like there's a lot of beatles there's a lot of beatles songs that are like that or or something similar to that where you have this composite melody right like that might even might even jump over to like a tuba or something like a, right. you know like a fill yeah. will, will pop in another instrument. another song that comes to mind that does the same thing for me is that allman brothers song uh midnight rider is that the song is that the Hmm. Not gonna let them catch me. Yeah, no. yeah. yeah, yeah. The melody you hear when you, yeah, that's, there isn't mm-hmm. like that's not one person. That's the way like the the vocals work, right? Mm-hmm. But like you don't really like I imagine one. Like, I could sing that as one part, but well, apparently do you, it doesn't work that way. You know? Do you happen to do you happen to know who's other than Greg Allman, the person who's singing that other part? Because I was gonna say that this is the kind of thing that often happens when family bands are singing together because they've just been singing together so long they uh, match handsome. up. Hanson, they just know where to. Yeah. Or the Everly Brothers is who I was thinking of because I think the Beatles were hugely influenced by the Everly Brothers in terms of how they structured their harmonies. But I don't imagine that was another Allman singing along with Greg. That's just a coincidence, probably. No, that was probably Dickie Betts. But in this case, I mean, you've got. I mean, these guys are, these are choir kids like hanging out through puberty, right? Like. Well, Phil, you made you made an interesting point that I think is something that is. Maybe in my experience, at least, of my the way that I mentally think about music, because I do have music running through my head all the time, it's somewhat unique to Beatles songs, is that I hear a melody that it, there's a through line of melody throughout the entire song that is picked up by different instruments and picked up by different singers, and it feels like there is, I could track it, it's almost like a line graph mm-hmm. of a continuous mm-hmm. melody that goes through the song. And sometimes it gets picked up on piano. Sometimes it gets picked up on bass. And that level of melody really can take something that is maybe not the greatest subject matter or maybe not the even just like the greatest chordal arrangement and turn it into something that is undeniably catchy and hook and has a, a hook in you. Yeah, it's just enjoyable to listen yeah. to. I, I think it's a great way to describe at, at its core what the Beatles are really good at on a songwriting and arrangement level tom because yeah i i agree it's melody after melody after melody and the way that for instance in this song that bass picks up right after the vocal melody drops out and you think of that as a continuation of that melody is it's it's really challenging because they all have to kind of be good for your ear to want to follow them and it's it's melodies and counter melodies and like you said spread across instruments and textures to bring it back to another one of our favorite topics, I compare it to The Simpsons, 
when they talk about the Simpsons, like the joke per minute, it is just joke to joke to joke to joke. They are daisy chaining do- jokes across the entire episode, and it's not a big buildup and payoff for one joke. It, it, within that, there's five or six different jokes that happen for that. You know, it's a sign of, of enduring great art. And to also give the Simpsons a little bit more credit, there's one one part in the uh, documentary which really cracked me up. It just showed me that how they nailed it without even access to the footage where they're asking for their, their lunch orders and John's just like, I will have a sparrow <laughs> cooked and served on a piece of toast. And I was like, yeah, it's a single plum served in perfume, floating in perfume served in a man's hat. Like, you know, it's, it, it's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I think That's what's great. cool is, is, um, I, and I never knew this. I never knew about their like Homburg days actually until I read that book outliers that Malcolm Gladwell, Phil, you mentioned like the 10,000 hours thing, oh, yeah. how they just like put in time way early on such that by the time they got to this point, it, I don't want to say it's like effortless because that's selling it short, but I mean, they're just drawing on this well of hooks and riffs and, they're just able to connect all that shit. There's like an alchemy there that isn't just like spontaneous or doesn't just come out of sonic nowhere. Alchemy? That's really <laughs> pure sonic alchemy. Pure sonic alchemy. <laughs> this is another thing that I think could possibly go underappreciated by the average viewer of the documentary is, and that we're touching on. I know we're fawning all over the Beatles and, you know, live with it. Right. But it's, they're having been in so many of these band practices, they make it look so effortless, even from that vantage point of watching them rehearse. They're able to pull together a really good sounding version of the track almost instantly. And that is not normal. No. I think the song is great. I think it's a, a great example of the kind of light charm that this record is trying to get across, even though it doesn't exact, exactly sound live. It doubles, you know, I think it was probably written by Paul about Linda and his early love affair with her, but it doubles as being about Paul and John, and I like it for I like that kind of double. You know, there. this song stuck out to me. Maybe not as much as others in the documentary, but I'll I'll use this as just an opportunity to bring it up. Did you notice how they would just like, hey, like let's just do one, let's do one in vampire voices, like let's do one with you on the keyboard, like let's do one where like where we you're we're singing like this. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and you're like, right. why? Are you doing this? But at the same time, they're just banging them out with like fresh takes on the harmony and like, you know. Like. I, I also appreciate it makes me appreciate Ringo too, kind of as you know one of the unsung heroes that they're not even like counting off anymore. It's just they start playing and he's in there and he knows his role. He know he's not jumping up and screaming like, "Hey, I wasn't ready." <laughs> like he's just there. He's like a drum machine that somebody's he, he triggering at least in be the ready. background. I mean, he's not so doing much else. At least be fucking ready. <laughs> They're not asking him for a lot of opinions on the song structure. Oh, yeah, that. that too. But I, 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 I'm not a Ringo hater, but I at the beginning of the documentary, I I laughed out loud when it was like talking about the early formation of the Beatles and they said that they got Liverpool's best drummer, a top Ringo Liverpool star. <laughs> I was like I was like did did Liverpool just get the drums like six months before or something like that like again I'm not a hater that he's terrible or anything like that but I cannot imagine he was the best drummer in Liverpool yeah right right I, I don't feel think like Liverpool's that big I think that might be that might, that might be part of the problem Liverpool's there, there are small. moments where I feel like Ringo is actually just like a record company executive like there's one time in the documentary where he's like in the uh, he's in the booth with like George Martin and some of the other like engineer guys and they're all talking and Ringo's like, 
There's not going to be a show. We're not going to do a show. There's not going to be a show. And then way later, they have like audio of him on a phone call. and uh, Or no, 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 no. It's just audio. And they're all like yammering. Oh, nine songs, three songs. And they all leave. And Ringo's like, we're going to play six songs on the roof at the end of the week. <laughs> like, 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 he knows what's up. He knows what's up. Look, guys, like this is what we're gonna do. Like, I'll tell you, production people who need to have your shit together so it can happen, right? He manages to stay aloof from the whole situation. He's up on that drum riser, and he's kind of set back from this all the arguments, and he just seems kind of happy-go-lucky and high on quaaludes. But he was really engaged. He was paying attention, though. It's not like I feel. You could easily just get distracted and looking around the room and thinking about something else. But I mean, he was pretty locked in. He just didn't say anything. He seemed like he's like, I mean, you've seen how I look, and then you, this is my wife, and uh, I pulled up here in a Rolls Royce, and I have a fur coat. Like, I'm pretty set. I'm pretty cool. I'm good. Just play the show. I'll Don't play, play the show. Doesn't really matter right. to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. I think yeah. Okay, let's move it right along to the next song we want to talk about, which is Across the Universe. Let us play a quick snippet of that. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Possessing and caressing me and feelings about this tune adam this one was always just mediocre to me i i never really understood why people loved it so much maybe i'm not very music or i'm sorry uh lyric i don't know if it's super lyrical and i've never really paid attention to the lyrics but this tune you know it's i know people love it i just always thought it was kind of uh you know a mediocre track i love this song i this is i i feel this is like lennon at his best personally for me but on the lyrical front i mean if this documentary did not shatter any illusions that these right. lyrics mean anything i don't know what it would take um so it, okay. paper cups rain yeah. what else could we yeah. throw in there mystical I don't no know. i have a good this kind of this kind of knocked me back i heard this story about the lyrics the words are flowing out like endless rain inside a paper cup it sounds very mystical and cosmic it turns out it was about his ex-wife Cynthia just nagging the hell out of him. <laughs> wow. No wonder he found a new partner that didn't say shit. Words. <laughs> she just screamed every opportunity she could. <laughs> All right. I think Yoko. it's a great tune. I I like it. It's it's vibey to me and it represents probably yeah, I would agree with Tom. Kind of the best of what Lennon can offer, although I'm definitely on the on team McCartney generally. And one thing I'll notice, uh, mention musically that I think is kind of cool that it does is the chorus ends on uh, the major seventh note. It's a note that leaves you hanging and wanting resolve back to the verse, which I think is kind of an interesting maneuver. So across the universe, 
makes you want to like go to the next note. I just don't think that's a trick that's used a lot in songwriting, and I appreciated that. Yeah, I hear that. I'm I'm sort of aligned with you, Adam. Where I I think I like it. I mean, it's good. I I like almost all their songs, frankly. But I I wonder if it was also that Phil Spector treatment. Yeah, all the ahs like, and the kind of chorusy. Yeah, yeah, just not knowing that it was overproduced to the point that they were not happy with it. And hearing the stripped down version, I think, gave it a little different flavor. Good point. So we should mention that this was actually, they mess around with it a little bit in the documentary, but really the version that ended up on the record was tracked almost a year before and intended, intended for single release back in 1968, but it, Lennon was unsatisfied with how it turned out and, and they ended up shelving it for a while. And then Phil Spector is kind of the one that, that brought it back. Another interesting instrumental aspect of it, there's a lot of allusions to the sort of Indian mysticism that the Beatles were interested in, but there's also Indian instruments on it, right? And so in addition to a sitar, there's this instrument that I had never heard of, and I recommend we play a little bit of the YouTube clip of this instrument playing. It's called a tanpura, and it's not really tonal. It just drones in this weird Doppler effect buzz kind of way but it's quite let's drop in a little clip of that right now it's a fucking wild sound well, I find it interesting you talk about how the Beatles were into the Indian mysticism. Because at one point, I think it might be Ringo, where they're sort of like, oh, yeah, Ringo, what do you think about it? Oh, no, I don't like it. <laughs> he, just sort of, he was like, no, nope, not on board. Yeah, I, I don't get what, what George is doing and why this bald guy is here throwing flowers on the floor. <laughs> Good point. You're right. John and, John and George were more into it, and George was the most into it. But they had all gone to India uh, together. Before that was a thing to do. So it, it made the rounds as something like Westerners going to India, meeting with a guru, hanging out in an ashram, pr- sitting and praying. You know, this was pretty new stuff for the world at that moment. Bringing sitar into Western recordings. This was all pretty new. The Gwyneth Paltrow goop of the era was going to uh, <laughs> going to India and, and finding your soul. I feel like people are still doing that to this day, just going to yoga studios. Oh, yeah. There and like, point. you know. I learned from a yogi that's been practicing since 2014. <laughs> <laughs> He's ancient. Really? I'm, I'm, Phil, are you going to stick up for this song at all, or you also feel like it's mediocre? I, mean, I think it's pretty good. I'm, I'm saving my ammo for some other songs. Looking to... Okay. Looking to, looking to like... I'm, I'm genuinely surprised. I think this is about... I, I mean, I guess I'd like to hear what you think a better John Lennon song is. Maybe that's the challenge. But one more note on the production that I thought was kind of interesting is they took the recording of the acoustic guitar and they slowed it down so that it went down in key a half step. So that's where they got some of the weird production vibe of that acoustic guitar. Huh. Kind of an, kind of an interesting effect. It is it is weird in general. Like the overall sound is very like warbly uh, in a very beautiful but strange way. Now that you say that, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. It has that sort of weird. Yeah, yeah, almost phasey yeah. kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I wonder if it was almost to because the 
recording I have of this tempura, it only really does one <laughs> note in a drone. And they had and to it's tuned to C bring sharp. Bring it in because so, I think it's right. Maybe he's playing it as a D chord, and then they yeah. maybe took the recording down to fit. They're this like, guys, we're gonna have to do the whole. Motherfucking <laughs> well, it, it's not like <laughs> harmonicas where you buy an entire pack and there's just one for every key. <laughs> Sadly, no. Okay, let's move right along to the song I've Got a Feeling. This is one of the ones definitely taken from the rooftop directly, which is pretty cool. Let's play a snippet of one, this. One second. Right I imagine we're working through the record chronologically. Yeah, sure. So I would just like to say, you know, like as if we're listening to it, I'd like to say that, I mean, like, holy crap, did the Beatles like shit sandwich let it be. Dig it, let it be Maggie May. 50 seconds, <laughs> four minutes of let it be, 40 seconds of Maggie, Maggie May. I mean, like, you've definitely got meat and bread there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, well, you know, <laughs> listen, let it be to us. I mean, I let it be is one of the best songs ever written. It's great. I was shocked by how utterly unimpressed the rest of the Beatles were when Paul started playing it. They were <laughs> unimpressed. They're like, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. I mean, it was a little intro like this. I was like, why just let it be? It, it, come on. Well, they, I wonder if they just felt like it was a Hey Jude Redux or something. Yeah, like, you know? Hey Redux of like one of the, again, one of the best songs ever written. <laughs> <laughs> by, by the way, yeah. Glenn Johns for the win. He was the one who, who told Paul that he should take that. I was like, oh my God, that was Glenn. Yes. Great point. Earned his, earned his keep there. All right, anyway, I just wanted to talk about, you know, the shit burger. So we can move on. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Moving on. And I think those are those are both tracks that were cut in Paul's Let It Be Naked version. So you're really talking about the Phil Spector track listing, not even the Beatles themselves, for whatever that's worth. But okay, let's move on to I've Got a Feeling. Place I've got a feeling that keeps me on my toes. Oh, yeah. Everybody had a good time Everybody had a wet dream Everybody saw the sunshine Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah Everybody had a good year Everybody let the hair down I like this song. I've always liked it. I like the... There's, I just like the interplay with you know Paul and John. I know it's sort of segmented, but I think it's a good like Paul and John song. It reminds reminds me a little bit more of like the music that was to come after this, like more seventies rock. Like it was a little bit of a precursor to to that stuff. Um, there's also I never even picked this up until I started listening to this again recently. Coming into this song, there's a really cool. I'll give Ringo some some props. There's a cool little kick thing he does where it's just like boom, dun dun dun. dun. And I don't know. It just adds a little bit of like a little bit more to what he's doing, which is not Ringo's a not ton. bad. He's just not flashy at all. I think this is exactly what they were aiming for with this record. 
and it kind of dumbs down the Beatles a little bit to make me feel like, hey, I, I could almost be in a band that would write this. I could be. Almost. <laughs> right. but almost. That, but that yes. doesn't mean – it's a, I still think it's a great song, and I agree. It's a great example of Paul and John interplay. I think they literally had two unfinished songs, and they slammed them together, but I think it works. It's a great – place for billy preston yeah that was another thing that i, I to get in there came, mm-hmm. came away with was just like he really breathes life into this song in a way that i i don't know i don't know if it would have had much like meat you know or, or uh you know in, in the shit sandwich might not have had much much going on there but yeah i mean it's gonna live and die on that oh yeah harmony like again the, the sort of harmonies that they were doing if it wasn't for the Billy Preston really nice electric piano, it would have just been that. But to the point of Rob dumbing down the Beatles, like Phil and Adam, you remember we covered this song. It was one of the few Beatles songs that we did cover because it was so damn easy. We're just like, all right, well, right, you know, we got yes. we got to yeah, hit one totally. harmony and learn a couple of different parts. But I think Alan's right too that it also presages what the next decade of music is kind of going to sound like. It gave it. It's a little more the Beatles stepping into the 1970s, which I think is is kind of nice. And yeah, it's kind of a jam, but it it mostly comes together for me. I think it was the again. I, I hate to harp on the "Let It Be Naked," but I think they may have used a different vocal track, or that Paul is just higher because in that version, I it was new to me because he wails in the tune. Like he has a great rock and roll voice in this song, which is something else I appreciate that he can go from doing something beautiful along a winding road, let it be to he's yep. screaming on this track and he's nailing mm-hmm. it. It's not, you know, that it's bridge. not, it's just which, great. By the way, I noticed something that they kept referring they, they would never call it a bridge. He called it middle a He'd be like, we're going to go to middle a. And I think that it makes you think about, that differently because i've noticed that there are a lot of beatles parts that feel bridgy but they show up a couple of times and so when you think about it as a middle a and not as a bridge literally between two parts then it gives you a little bit of a different way to sort of conceptualize how to even piece a song together you're like oh go to middle a go to middle a and i'm like oh middle a okay what do you think that's referring to though not in this song it's not in this particular song yeah. No, no. I mean, what is what is the terminology middle A trying to get across? I understand that it's not bridge, but what is it itself trying well, to get Well, I think that in – I'm trying to think of a good example of it where they'll – Do you mean that it's like a riff on the A part? It's like it's slightly augmented? I don't mean it's a riff on the A part. I mean it's almost like an alternate A because it's not, it's not a chorus and it's not a bridge. It's I like see. an alternate A part okay. that you're throwing out there. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that that I remember thinking when I was hearing that, like, oh, that sort of opened my mind up a little bit about a, you, I, you tend to get stuck in these linear thoughts about song building. You have an A part, a B part, and then you throw in your bridge C part, and then you go back to a go back to the B part, you know. And this opened it up a little bit more that you can kind of sprinkle these middle A's in there. I noticed this is this is a little like Beatles ism. This was like a little band room thing that I thought I similar to what you're saying. I was like, I think they're talking about something. It's, it's an interesting band room concept. They debated a few times about what they were listening to when they were singing harmony. I presumed like what they were saying, though, is they were like they were sort of debating like who would drone or who would thunk along. It's sort of under, uh, sort of in the context of like. 
if we're singing harmony, we both need to be singing against the same reference. Mm. I'm not harmonizing to mm. you. We're both singing off of that, whether it's the bass or the keyboard or my guitar part. We all have to agree what like the dumbest thing is. And we're all singing to that. I just thought it was an interesting concept because they were they kept talking about it. like Because they called it tuning. I'm tuning to this. We're tuning to this. You're not tuning to this. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, right, tuning. right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I just thought it was interesting. And it has not that come up. It makes sense, in, though. It does. It does make sense. Because you can't be too fancy while the harm... Well, and it also speaks to Tom's concept of multiple melodies stacked mm-hmm. one there after the other. But they have to be kind of sequential. Mm-hmm. And they want to reference the same tonic rather than this idea that, like, I'm referencing you and you're this other live thing that's happening, right? Right. Especially how loose a lot of the playing is on the guitar and the bass when you when you really think about it. I mean, they locked it in. But John yeah. Lennon is a better guitar player than he's given credit for. He sounds pretty totally. good on this. I was pretty Yeah, impressed. I agree. I never, I never, yeah, in, in my head, I don't know why, but... I mean, I mean, I know they grew up playing, and they're obviously playing on their albums. But I just never pegged him for a guitar player for whatever reason. Well, I think it's because he hasn't had he didn't have to carry the the load as like any kind of like solo guitarist or you know. And, sure. and I think yeah, he didn't yeah, carry that weight. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, so he specifically he plays lead guitar on the, the track Get Back, and it's really mostly because George, that's when George quit, is when they were first developing that song. <laughs> and so he had to jump in and write the part. But yeah, he sounds pretty good. It's funny when they're talking about that. I think that's the song where they're like, I don't know. I mean, if he doesn't come back, we'll get clapped. And I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's talk says. about this for a second. Because in Get Back, they are talking specifically about uh, Enoch Powell, right? So, right, with Get Back. Yeah, they said they were going to write that as a protest song to his prominence. So, like, you know, super racist piece of shit Clapton was probably already a fan of that. I mean, you know, not to get overly political about it, but that would be somewhat the equivalent of, like, you being in a band with somebody and them just being like, I'm, like, super into Donald Trump. And the reason I'm super into Donald Trump is he's going to build that wall. He's going to keep out those Mexicans. (laughs) And you'd be like, yeah, no, it's cool. I'm... Super yeah. into peace. Let's yeah, go let's write that, that love, love song, song now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, no, yeah, you, but you got to start from the perspective that you're writing a protest song against fascism. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and then that guy enters the band and he's room. like, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm gonna put some tasty licks down. However, can we change the lyrics to uh, get the Pakistanis <laughs> out of England? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they just assumed he'd take it at face value instead of tongue in cheek. Yeah. Okay, let's well, let's segue into listening to uh, the next song. Which uh, we're not. We're gonna. We're gonna hold off on get back because it is the last track, and I think it's important to note that it is the last track on the original album. But we're gonna go with "For You Blue." It's a George song. Let's play a snippet of that. Because you're sweet and lovely, girl. I love you. Because you're sweet and lovely, girl. It's true. I love you more than ever, girl, I do I want you in the morning, girl I love you All I have to say about this song, I know George Harrison wrote a lot of good Beatles songs. But if you're going to 
be butthurt that they're not taking your songs. You better come to the table with something a little better than this. <laughs> it's, I mean, you know, it's not like terrible, but like there had to have been other things that they rejected that are much better than this. Yes. I think we saw some of those yeah, in the yeah, documentary. Yeah, sure. In fact, yeah, dude, listen, I know it's become canon to say, oh, George is so underrated as a songwriter and he was being stifled by Lennon. No, his song, he's not as good, even like by miles yeah. as Lennon and McCartney are. And yeah. this, this album definitely proves it. It's not to say that he hasn't written some great tunes. He has. But let's just let's just facts are facts. Well, like, guys. I mean, at this point in time, like whatever this is, like 1968, you know, like Paul McCartney is just firing like cannon blasts left and right. You know? <laughs> and like, it's crazy. It's crazy. And then like every now and again, John will wander and be like, oh, I wrote this song that I'll release in a decade. And it's amazing. Right. You know. And then, you know, and then there's like, you know, and then there's George helping Ringo write Octopus's Garden. Yeah. Right? Like, and then there's that, right? But you're right. Like, Paul is like, oh, here's Let It Be. I have this song Let It Be. I'm just going to also, I just want to demo Oh Darling real quick and just, you know, throw that one out there. Like, it's not, it's like, come on, man. Like, as, uh, as was mentioned by, I don't even forget which, which, guy said i think it might have been like the the tv show producer was talking about george being upset and and saying well he has to basically be as good of a songwriter as lennon and mccartney together because they are like the power pole and then there's george right Right. so it's like george versus lennon and mccartney and they're like well but they're not really writing so much together that much anymore and i'm like well no but when they bring the songs to their table they're just mesh right away you know, and they can they can they can fill it out instantaneously. They have that shorthand and they know how to to write together in the room really effectively. So it's got to be really daunting when you're coming in. Basically, both sides of the spectrum are covered in terms of like a little grittier kind of, you know, maybe more edgier stuff from John and just the stone cold killer, beautiful stuff from Paul. And you're George like, where's my lane? What's what am I going to do to contribute here? His insecurity was actually refreshing, I found, because he was like the everyman. Again, I'm not comparing myself to to anywhere even close to uh, George Harrison, but think about how much farther <laughs> the you know J- uh, uh, John and Paul are from the average man. So it was nice to see George, which I felt was the average the uh, the average Joe in there, which was just a nice balance in the storytelling of the of the documentary. Yeah. I might be a mile off here, but do you think, like, I mean, Ringo's got to be packing, like, eight, nine inches, right? Because, I mean, like, he's really confident around these guys, right? He's got to have some sorts of confidence that is, you know, known but not seen. I I think, honestly, for Ringo, he's just like, I've already got it made forever. Playing with house money. It just all falls apart right now. I want for nothing forever, and I'm in the Beatles. I'm going to be a movie. They're going to put me in a movie. They're going to make a big star out of me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think he has the – you meaning the right perspective, Tom? Yes, he has the right perspective. Things are actually going great, and there's no need to argue. Yeah, I I should be thankful for everything that I have because as I look around, again, I have a $20,000 fur coat and a Rolls Royce and a beautiful wife. And, like, my job is that I show up at noon and play music for six hours. (laughs) 
they they flash two or three times like there's a band meeting at Ringo's house. It's always at Ringo's house. They flash to a picture of his house. It's nice it's house. It's like sprawling. <laughs> it's a nice house. English estate. Manor. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, damn, Ringo. All yeah. right. It's a nice house. Oh, nice when they when they just one more uh, hating on Yoko thing when they smash cut to <laughs> the the original the original conversation with George to try to get him back in the band that does not go well and but Linda McCartney was there I think but Yoko was definitely there and they drop later I think Linda actually drops it later that like John didn't talk. And Yoko did all the talking Yoko for John and Yoko, which behalf. I yeah. like. What yeah, no fuck? wonder it didn't go well. Seriously, if I can was... you imagine your doorbell rings? It's the band members to convince you, and she's standing oh at like the God. glass yeah. of yeah, the door. The I, not, be, no, not... I'm not opening it. I'm surprised he didn't murder them. <laughs> so am I to believe that if I'm ever kicked out of Mega Phil, that that Regina is going to be the one that delivers that message to me? Well, well, no, no. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that's so much different, right? This isn't a scenario where like Yoko is not John's wife that's known everybody in the band for a decade she's just no, some it's way worse than that way she's just the trick who got him twisted up on heroin a couple of months back <laughs> yeah John had just gotten divorced from his first wife the year you know at the end of the year before and he was he's really had just started up with Yoko so yeah it's it is bizarre to the max yeah but to go, to go back to Harrison, I feel like what's going on here, and I, I do feel a little sorry for George, even though we're coming out and saying George isn't that great a songwriter. I think he has a couple shining moments, like on the White Album with my, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and maybe Here Comes the Sun on Abbey Road and something. But not here, not on this record. And keep in mind, though, what, what I kept thinking about is the concept for the record was Back to Basics, a, a.k.a. American blues songs that are kind of light and breezy. So George is maybe like toiling away. I'm just imagining him going, okay, that's the concept. I'll write to that writing prompt. And then he comes into the studio and Paul and John are just whipping fastballs right by his head saying, fuck that concept. Here's Maxwell Silver Hammer. Like here's right. like an on the road to Merrick Cash. Right? Like, oh, by the way, I think my favorite part of the documentary is they're, they're just sitting around and Paul's just like, can we get an anvil and a hammer? And I'm just like, like five minutes later, a guy rolls in with an anvil and a hammer. Just like they're in the middle of Savile Row in downtown London, and they're like, "Yeah, we found a smithy out back, and we got a hammer and an anvil here for you. Whatever you want, sir." Yeah. So there's there's that. Okay. Well, let's move on to get back. The last song on the Let It Be Phil Spector release. Let's play a snippet of that one.
I was actually going to say, so Rob, for the benefit of people who may not have seen the documentary, the magic around how this song was produced. Yeah, it's probably already the most famous scene in this new documentary where Paul sits down and basically starts to improv strumming the guitar and call basically calls up a recognizable chunk of this song, Get Back, from seemingly nothing that he had before. Like It doesn't seem like he had pre-written anything in about two to three minutes. And they, they don't have it all worked out, but a lot of it's right there from an improv in under three minutes. It's pretty astounding. And like watching his face. Oh, I was gonna say, are you talking about George Harrison's face? When like back to your point about like he's sitting there like, <laughs> and Ringo's like, Ugh. like while Paul's just like a machine just churning out spontaneous combustion. Hit factor in McCartney. He's an animal. Well, and that is that is part of. I, I had somebody who um, had watched this documentary, and before I'd seen any of it, and was like, McCartney kind of comes off like a dick. And I think it's just that McCartney was very focused on getting it done, and he was doing the work while Harrison was sitting around kind of being like, I'm underappreciated, and Eric Clapton's a better guitar player than I am. <laughs> and Paul McCartney's like, yeah, Eeyore. exactly. It's like, great. That well, doesn't solve boo. any of our problems. We still need a hook, and so let me write a quick hook really quick. And he's just, doom, doom. it's a simple song, but you throw in that, get back to where you once belong. And that's it. That's the song right there. Like, oh, great. You know, Tom, there's a lot of instances of, potentially on this song, of Paul playing with a pick. Yeah. Speak to that. He played with a pick because he was trying to fill out the entirety of the instrumentation when he was first writing it. It's like very strummy, you know? And uh, I personally, Mm -hmm. I'm not a super big fan of strummy bass because I feel like you're kind of taking away a little bit of where the guitar should be and that you should be occupying a different lane as the bass player there. But it fits the song very well. Because it was written that way, you know? He was trying to f- get a big sound and fill it so out. So sometimes and, like, a know, pick is the right move. I have never have said that pick is the wrong move. Every time. Uh, I said roll the harder tape. Roll the for tape. Bass, harder for bass to be <laughs> the, hot the, when you have when you're playing with a pick. Tape. All right? Listen. <laughs> you do know we record these, right? Uh, you can go back. You can go back and listen to the hour. Like it'd be a, it would be a get back esque effort to listen to all of the podcasts that we have here, and see if I've ever once said you cannot sound good with a pick. I would never say that. That it would be a ridiculous statement, and I don't make ridiculous statements, guys. Never. never. <laughs> Clearly. So, I think I think it's a great example of a simple but very effective song, similar to I've Got a Feeling, but probably even a better song than that. And partially just because it, it employs an effective like rhythmic figure that is that makes the song interesting and elevates it a little bit. The thing where they're kind of hitting selectively on the two and mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. beat, you know, that that makes you kind of jump in your seat a little bit. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's great hearing how Paul called it up out of nothing makes it more exciting to me. Knowing that the song is a tongue-in-cheek anti-immigrant song, definitely never knew that. Uh, I heard also an anecdote that Lennon. Maybe this is post-acrimonious split, but that he started to envision that Paul was actually singing it the entire time directly at Yoko. <laughs> Justified. <laughs> yes. I like this song even more now. Thank you for planting that seed. I think the real question is, we've spoken a lot about first side one, track one, but is this the best career-ending track mm. of all time? Mm. Career-ender track. 
man, I have never engaged in this exercise. Well, because usually the last track from bands that are fading away is shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think usually just the last track on an album is not the standout. It's the last track that was released, again, not the last track that was recorded, right? Correct. So thinking about it that way. um, Hmm. Okay, we can return to that one, but maybe maybe this is the point in the podcast to also mention as a framing device that the reason the documentary is called Get Back is because through a lot of these sessions, based on the concept that the Beatles went into the studio with initially, they were going to call the record Get Back. And that was oh. the title of the project okay. for a very long time because they were trying to get back to their own roots, get back to being friends, get back to being a live band, etc., and then ultimately, when the project was released, as we know, it was called Let It Be, which has two <laughs> meanings, at least. Because at that point, the band had broken up, and they let it be. So maybe the more provocative question before we round this podcast out is, are we actually glad that the Beatles let it be after this? Adam. Yes. I think there's so many bands that have petered out. And is it Neil Young? Better burn to out than to fade away. What is it? Uh, burn out than to fade away. Now, then they didn't necessarily burn out, but or maybe they did. I think just leaving on a contentious high note is the way to do it. Is that we're we're not rolling our eyes yeah, that uh, oh my god the Stones are still touring. Oh my god, Ozzy's still touring. Give it up, man. You're a thousand years old or whatever. I I'm I would cool way with rather it. see Ozzy than the Stones. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> But it was lightning in a bottle for six years, right? And I think that there's a beauty in that, is that you took potentially 40 years of creativity if they had, like, let this thing kind of slowly, you know, uh, um, disperse. They crammed it all into a a six-year period. You you know what? I I agree with you, Adam. I think think they were better. I think it's better that it, it, it sort of imploded, right? I think All Things Must Pass is fantastic, right? But that's a decade of George Harrison's unreleased material, right? That he wrote side by side with Lennon and McCartney. He didn't do much after that, right? John and Paul, they do good stuff, but it's not like before, right? If John or Paul had released half as many records of only the good songs, you know, their solo records would be better. (laughs) And, you know, Ringo's right. He lives in a giant house and sleeps on a big pile of money with many beautiful women and you know it is what it is right good one right he he does the the all-star band playing with all the uh (laughs) steve miller and all those guys and i think his one radio hit was written by paul mccartney and handed to him right you know it don't come easy yeah Yeah, that was definitely handed to him yeah, so it's hard to disagree with how history went down, but I, I wanted to bring it up partially because I think it's an overlooked aspect of why the Beatles are considered so great. It's because it's so rare that people actually just end it relatively at the top. Well, I actually, I have a different opinion on it. I wish that they had put out another two albums, mostly because the next session that they did brought Abbey Road. And if they had gotten into a universe where, and this is going to sound like almost a dickish thing to say, and it's out of character for me to say dickish things, but if everybody had just kind of learned their (laughs) damn role and gone with it, they could have had a phenomenal two albums worth of stuff. 
based upon what was released with Wings, what uh, what Lennon released, and what um, uh, what George released. I think that they could have put out two really good albums and they could have been very additive if they had all learned uh, to absolutely. work together, right? Absolutely. I think Wings is great. I think. But they needed a break. They needed a what, break. Well, here's yeah, and I also, you have to think about like, what what were they depriving the world of by stopping? And if it was that they were depriving the world of like a slightly better version of Wings or a slightly better version of, you know, George Harrison solo stuff. Like to me, that doesn't, that's not enough to say like, oh yeah, they, they had to keep going because you know, that stuff's good, but I, they, I think they were just kind of done. I think that stuff is good, but I also think that had they, again, had they actually gotten to work together, cause it did seem like they were kind of having fun. And maybe part of the reason why they ended up breaking up for good is because after they got in the guy in the get back sessions and like really rough beginning, pulled it out at the end but then they went it was like what like only like a month later they went back in for the abbey road sessions like they did not give themselves yeah. a break and they probably burned themselves out on abbey road that was probably not the right move but if they had gotten back to that sort of fun like collaborative type of environment i think that the stuff that was put out with wings the stuff that was put out um you know uh, all things must pass and the stuff that that john put out I think that those would have been the low water marks of what they could have achieved as a band. So somewhat selfish of me. I, I wish that they had made it work. Well, the, the alternate though, is that you could just compile a non-existent post Beatles Beatles record with the songs that are on those other records and imagine them as produced by the Beatles. I, I'm sure this exercise has been completed by sure. others, right? But because we've seen that they took this kind of broad over time approach to songwriting, then in all likelihood, that first Beatles record would have, or that, sorry, that next Beatles record after Abbey Road would have had Maybe I'm Amazed on it and would have had All Things Must Pass on it and would have had Jealous Guy or something on it. And so you can kind of envision what that sounds like. So, I mean, yeah, Tom has a point too, but they're great because they stopped. That's, I'm just saying that's No, they certainly it. went on top. And again, I don't want them to be the Stones. <laughs> I wouldn't want to, like, you know, Rob and I saw right. Yes perform in the basement of a of a casino in Reno, Nevada, right? Like, I would not want, I would not want that experience for the Beatles, where, or even the Stones experience, where they're still selling out stadiums. Uh, that, that would be terrible. Um, but I do wish they had gotten it together for just a little bit longer because they were also still young. Dude, I, I, I saw a picture of um, not Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. I saw a picture of me, Keith Richards uh, backstage at a Stones show, like in between songs, like changing guitars. Right. He was just standing there like ready to go. He's literally an old man in a pair of Reeboks and a pair of gray sweatpants and a t-shirt <laughs> drinking a Coca-Cola with a headband on and they throw right. a guitar on his head and set him out on stage. And I'm like, damn, that kind of sucks when you show it like that. But yeah. yeah, like, what are you doing? He's just an old man wearing gray sweatpants. Like, that's... <laughs> but you know what? That's honestly better than an old man trying to dress like super hip. Like, sure. that. that's a little bit embarrassing. I saw Bad Religion uh, like a while back. It was only like a couple of weeks ago. But they're grandfathers, you know. They they're all grandpas Jesus, now. And yeah, one man. of the guys came out, and he's got like super tight pants on, and this like super stylized 
but old man hair, and he's wearing a shirt that says "Disco sucks." I'm like, "Disco hasn't been popular for 40 years. What? You're still protesting against disco? Yeah. You're so stuck in like 1987. It's really kind of pathetic." <laughs> committed, too committed to the look. Okay, I think this conversation has probably been long enough. Let's try to round it out here. I think the question on the table for all of us is: Did Robert Diamery make a mistake? Is let it be a must? listen before you die adam i'm gonna go with yes i think just the sheer presence of (laughs) let it be on this album and uh, as tom had mentioned it is likely one of the greatest songs ever written and recorded i think you gotta hear it phil i'm gonna go yes as well especially now that there's so much build up behind this with the documentary, there's so much footage you can get into. There's just so much about the history of the Beatles that this is sort of a way in. So I'm gonna say yes. This was a this was a snub by Dimery. Tom, I'm gonna go no, and I'm going no not because I don't love this album. I do love this album. I don't think that it is worse than uh, Raw Like Sushi, certainly, <laughs> but. I think that I, I've used the criteria in the past that. Um, I don't look at it like you've lived in a vacuum. You've heard Across the Universe. You've heard Let It Be. You've heard Get Back. You've heard I've Got a Feeling. If you're in any way serious about listening to music, you've heard those four songs, and if you've heard those four songs, you don't really need to listen to the rest of the album. Alan, what do you think, buddy? I'm going to say no as well, and I think to say that this belongs on the list is to suggest that everybody should listen to all of the Beatles catalog, which maybe should be the case. I would disagree. Well, (laughs) (laughs) not all of it, but I think because they're so, look, I mean, they're probably on this list for basically every other album. So I don't think the average person, you know, will have a, a, a void in their, you know, portfolio of listening if they were to catch all the other ones and not this, honestly. Um, but Phil brings up a good point. I do think, the the new context and the new information we have around this does does make me weigh it a little bit towards like listening just because it's now uh just taken on different meaning but but i i I am gonna say no okay i'm gonna say yes so your votes mean nothing guys tyranny majority (laughs) oh they don't want to play my songs what is this (laughs) and And it's because it's we're not talking about the average listener. We're talking about nerds who are devoted to understanding the musical recorded, the musically recorded canon. And while I do not think this is the best entry point for the Beatles, I think it is a really important part of the Beatles catalog system. It's their last recording, but more importantly, it is a peek into what they were like or could have been like near the end there as a live band. That plus all the the great songs that are on there. Yeah, is it a little uneven? Yeah, definitely. But I think it's, I think you have time in your life. Based on what we've already gone through on this list, a thousand and one records is a heck of a lot of records. And I think you have time for one more Beatles record. I did look at Diamery's list. He has excluded Let It Be. He has excluded Magical Mystery Tour, which I would argue (laughs) Yeah, that's that's snub. That's snub. And but but effectively, what I think what Alan was implying was that from Rubber Soul on, he has everything but Let It Be and Magical Mystery Tour, and I don't think that's uh, appropriate. And I left Yellow Submarine. I don't think that's, that's an official that's record, fair. right? That's, but no. 
Okay. Rob, by the way, how, so, how dare you not let me live in this world where we don't have a ton of just casual listeners that are just listening to this? <laughs> like, you know, well, I was either going to listen to this or, uh, you know, there was a podcast about uh, keeping up with the Kardashians. I, I picked this one, you know. <laughs> I'm saying my criteria is for the nerds who seek to, like us, seek to become knowledgeable in all these records that are important to the recording canon. We should just label this this episode on Spotify as like a review of the second season of Emily Loves Paris. <laughs> we will get a ton of listeners, and they'll be like, "What is this?" And maybe we'll catch them. Maybe we'll We're get like, them early. Here's the prodigy. Oh, you ever heard of them? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, that does it, Beatles. One more accolade. I know you've sold more records than any other group on God's green earth, but <laughs> you know, Rob, we're going to go ahead we and add off, one more to the pile. Before we sign off, I'd like to add a note that I came across in my research. This is potentially my hottest Beatles take ever, so maybe we dig into this more some other time. I think the Beatles got lucky because please, please me, side A sucks. I saw her standing there as good, wait, but misery wait. sucks. Anna go to him sucks. Chain sucks. Boys sucks. Ask me why sucks. That's the whole first side, and it sucks. After the second song, you just want to turn over to the second side, which is please, please me, love me, do. P.S. I love you. Uh, don't you know a secret? Taste of honey, twist and shout. It's great. But the whole first side of the first record, with the exception of the first song, sucks. How did this happen? Thus begins the back half of the podcast. Getting in the Beatles catalog and continue through. Buckle up, folks! Another three hours. I mean, I, I, I'm, we'll, I'm being facetious. I say sucks, but I, I, you know, I actually think you could argue four or five of their worst songs are on side A of their first album. I don't think they got lucky, but I think that's I think a conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to end it here by picking next week's record. Tom, we'll throw it All to you. All right, let's get that albinator out. And yeah, hopefully we're going to go back to the beginning of the Beatles catalog and you guys <laughs> strap in for another one. This would be great. But, drum roll, please. Classic we'll Ono Band. To... Oh my God, no, I would, I would quit the podcast. No, it, 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 I, don't, I don't know what this is, but it might be somewhat similar. It is, the band is Sparks. And the album is Kimono My House. I'm not. Is Sparks spelled with an X? Because no. if it is, spelled I'm quitting the, the podcast as well. Oh. Um, <laughs> no, I'm wondering is Kimono My House like uh, Kimono, comma, my house? Like I live in a kimono, or are they asking to put a kimono on my house? Is it an order to kimono my house? I don't know what's going on with this. I don't know anything about this record. Anything. No. And the and nothing about I, like I'm looking at the cover art now. Definitely not helping. No idea. I, I know this band just a little bit. I think it's gonna be a fun one. Okay. All right. Kimono My House is also apparently a toy store in Emeryville, California, as I'm looking this up here. That's a it's almost certainly <laughs> referencing this. This is like a it's, referencing this, this it's a big cult band that's been around for a long time but sort of never achieved mainstream success. So Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's it's going to be weird and fun, I think, for us. All right. Opinions will fly, I have no doubt. <laughs> okay, we're going to wrap it up here. We've gone a little long today talking about one of uh, our all-time favorites, the world's all-time favorites, the Beatles. I hope you enjoyed it. If you disagree with us, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but of course, feel free to let us know at our email address, 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. That's the number, 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We will have uh, compiled a nice Spotify playlist for you in the notes with all the random songs we mentioned that weren't a part of the Beatles, including some of the Let It Be Naked tracks, just to orient you a little better, apart from the originally released Phil Spector album. And that is all for this week. It's been lovely chatting with you all. For 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boosh.